Well, I want to begin with a, a sort of a, a confession and, and then lead into a, a story. But uh, the confession begins with the frailty of your, of your pastor. The sermon's going to go just a tad longer than usual this morning. I tried really, really hard to winnow it down. Marissa is my witness. I tried really, really hard. And then I was sitting staring at my screen going, I don't think I can take anything else out. And she said, well, then don't. Apparently, you're supposed to preach that. I said, okay, that's what we're going to do. Uh, and then the story I wanted to tell you as we, um, actually I'm going to read the text first and then we'll, we'll get into that. So please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the first chapter of Ephesians. The text on which the sermon is based is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. You can find it on page 1159, 1159, in the navy blue Bibles uh, that are in your pew. And there we find, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so, uh, the story that I wanted to tell you was when, uh, when I went to General Assembly, uh, Eddie and I, when we went to General Assembly, we went by different means of transportation at different times. And as Providence would have it, I ended up flying out of Alexandria on the same flight with my dad into Dallas-Fort Worth. And then dad, I think, went to the West Coast and I continued on to Denver uh, to General Assembly. And um, part, of my, uh, part of my dad's job working for the, uh, the uh, Joint Commission is that uh, he travels quite a lot. He flies quite a lot. So he gets to stack up these airline miles, courtesy of his employer. And I've, I've discovered something, that when you stack up airline miles, they treat you real nice. Okay, so flying out of my, because uh, I've never liked flying, but when you stack up a bunch of miles and they decide to treat you nice, flying is not bad, y'all. It really isn't. And so all dad had to say when we got on the plane was he, he flashed that cool card and he said, he's with me, right? Oh, and all of a sudden the, the bounty was open to me, glory upon glory, rest upon rest. And so uh, I tell that story as a way that uh, I think uh, if you'll pardon the cheesiness of it, that that's a picture of the gospel, right? All blessing came to me. I did nothing to accomplish it myself. Someone else earned it entirely and then simply said, he's with me, right? There is a similar picture in our text this morning I want to point you to, and we're going to talk about. After the initial greeting in verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul launches into an overflow of praise, okay? It is, beginning in verse 3, the second longest sentence in the entire New Testament, okay? It starts in verse 3, it goes to verse 14. The only one longer is in Colossians chapter 1, 9 through 20, slightly longer. But this whole thing, verses 3 to 14, is meant to be one sentence. In our English translations, we add punctuation and periods and break it up into sentences because apparently we cannot hold our breath as long as the Apostle Paul. 
But the grammar of the Greek actually gives no indication that any of this is to be broken up into sentences. It's just one long, in Christ we have every spiritual blessing. (gasps) And here are the blessings, right? Chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Holy Spirit, elected to holiness, adopted as sons, forgiven, redeemed, holy and blameless, given a knowledge of God's amazing plan of salvation, filled with the Spirit as we work and wait for the hope of glory. And this is why... I gave over last Sunday to explain just how silly it is that we take a passage like this and turn it into a self-serious debate about predestination because predestination makes us uncomfortable. And meanwhile, the apostle is too busy worshiping, doesn't have time to breathe between his sentences for his excitement at the glorious gift of God. Paul has good reason to rejoice because in this first chapter of Ephesians, and to an extent uh, uh, in our verses today as well, we have Paul laying out what it means most fundamentally to be a Christian. Have you ever wondered that? If someone were to ask you, what does it mean most fundamentally to be a Christian? Well, uh, to believe in Jesus. That's a pretty good answer. To confess Him as Lord. That's certainly what one must do to become a Christian. Well, how about to love God and neighbor? Okay. That is certainly what our most important commandment is, our greatest responsibility or calling, you might say. And most of the other answers we would give to what does it mean to be a Christian have to do with uh, maybe uh, sanctification or, or good works, what we've been given to do. And we might have a desire to say something like, well, part of it means being in fellowship with other believers, going to church, praying regularly, of course, loving my neighbors. Those are all things that Christians do and are called to do. But what does it mean most fundamentally to be a Christian? If you have wondered that, Paul explains it here, begins to explain it here, continuing through this chapter in chapter 2. And the answer most fundamentally of what it means to be a Christian, here it is, you can write it down, The most fundamental reality of being a Christian is to be in Christ. In Christ. Not simply to know about Christ, but to be in Christ. So to get a sense of what that means, because maybe you're not familiar with that terminology, let's begin by reviewing some of what we talked about last Sunday. If you'll look back at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, okay? So blessing, we talked a bit about blessing, just as a recap, okay? To be a Christian then, because I'm incorporating this into what does it mean to be a Christian? To be a Christian means to be blessed, right? And not, well, the opposite would be cursed, right? We think of the word curse, we might think of uh, primarily perhaps of fantasy stories where someone gets cursed by an evil witch or where pirates are cursed to an immortal agony. It's like a harmful spell that holds continual sway. In Scripture, a curse is basically the opposite of a blessing. If a blessing, as we talked about last Sunday, is a word of favor from God, a curse is a word of affliction or trouble or judgment from God. And you probably know, if, you know Gen- if you're familiar with the first three chapters of the Bible, that we live in a cursed world. When God comes to our first parents after they eat the fruit, He speaks curses. Cursed is the serpent. Cursed is the ground. And so on. Not all curses, by the way, 
are punishments for specific sins. I mean, for instance, there are cases in Scripture where a husband and a wife are under a curse of barrenness. They, they can't have children. It's not because they committed any horrible sin, but in God's providence, they are navigating this affliction and praying that God would bless them, that is, to lift the curse. So when we get, uh, I think also of John 9, right? The blind man who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind, and Jesus says neither of them, but that the glory of God may be manifested, revealed to you. So when we get to the cross and the resurrection and the gospel, proclaimed by Paul, he begins by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. Jesus Christ comes to bless and to remove the curse and to bless us with every spiritual blessing. And so we will explore at least three things that are in our text this morning. First of all, the concept, the theological doctrine called union with Christ that is being in Christ. We're going to talk about that. Second, or actually, and then two things that flow from that. So to be in Christ therefore means that this good news of being in Christ has made us holy and blameless. That's verse 4, a.k.a. forgiven. And the good news is that we've been predestined for adoption, verse 5. So, in Christ is sort of the, the major heading. Because we are in Christ, we've been forgiven, we've been adopted. That's how the sermon's going to flow this morning. So let's talk about union with Christ. One of the things you noticed is that uh, this phrase shows up pretty often in our passage this morning. Two words, in Christ or in Him. So if you look back at uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Right? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Go over to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And then at the very end of our text, verse 6. With which He has blessed us in the beloved. So, if you think about those four verses that I just gave you, the faithful who are in Christ Jesus, the God and Father who's blessed us in Christ, even as He chose us in Him, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He's blessed us in the beloved, the Son whom He loves. So what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, I want to begin by observing He you might have expected him to say because of him, right? We have, I mean, think about it. We have every spiritual blessing because of Christ. Right? He chose us because of Christ. And that doesn't, I mean, doesn't seem like there'd be any problem there, right? Uh, he chose us because of Jesus. He's blessed us because of Jesus. A as stated, that's certainly true. God the Father has certainly blessed us because of what Jesus has done. But I think there's a reason why Paul exp expresses it as in Christ, not simply because of Christ. Let me put it to you like this. Paul doesn't say because of him, because of Christ, because that doesn't go far enough. Here's the idea. It might sound crazy at first, but walk with me through all of it. It is not immediately obvious, it is not immediately obvious why a Bethlehem-born carpenter's son getting killed 2,000 years ago would cover my sins, right? Just as I've stated it. 
I mean, imagine if that was like, did you know that 2,000 years ago a Bethlehem-born carpenter died and now your sins are covered? I feel like we're missing some information here. Indeed we are, right? It gets worse when you consider this verse, Psalm 49, verse 7. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. Whoa. What? No one can ransom another? No one can pay for another's sins? Well, guys, pack it up. Let's go home. I guess Christianity's done for. It's actually, this is actually a common skeptic's objection. You'll sometimes hear atheists object to Christianity, and if they're particularly well-read, they might even draw from Psalm 49. See, some guy getting killed so you can go free is not good news. It's actually injustice. And at one level, I think we can grant that's a pretty understandable objection. It even seems to have a proof text behind it. So here's what I will concede. By itself, it would make no sense that some guy getting killed in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, you know, that happens, and then God forgives my sins. Indeed, it would be unjust for God to punish someone else for my sins when they're my sins, right? I'm the guilty party. I'm the one who deserves to die. To this you might say, oh, but Brian, it's not just anyone that God the Father picked to die for your sins. He's the Son of God. There you go. That makes the situation worse, not better. If the objection is it's unjust for someone else, for, for an innocent person to die for a guilty person, it hardly makes things better to say, oh, well, the guy isn't innocent. He's actually perfect. That's even more unjust. So how do we explain this? The key to understanding this concept is the, is the doctrine, the idea called covenant headship, also called federal headship or representative headship. Different terminology, same thing. It's going to be a really important concept in Ephesians, so I want to kind of lay the groundwork for it now. To get at the idea of covenant or federal headship, uh, I want you to start by thinking about our own government, Okay. Now, when you hear the word federal, you probably think, oh, that must, you know, if you go to the Latin, that must mean bloated and ineffective, (laughs) right? No, that is actually the word federal has to do with representative, okay? And and, uh, if if that representative is a representative based on covenant, it's also why the word covenant headship is used. That's That's the term I prefer, which probably surprises none of you. What federal representation means, okay? is that, as you know, the entire population of the United States does not vote on every matter. We elect representatives, and they go as our substitute, right? It is their job to represent us, okay? Here's the idea then. When my representative votes, I am voting. When he acts, I act. When he participates, I participate because uh, the way representation works is that I participate and act in him or through him. Okay, Connect that to the language in Ephesians. In Christ, we have been given a federal head, a federal representative, a covenant head. Adam was the first federal covenant head of the human race. This means that when Adam was standing in the garden, pondering whether or not to eat the fruit, the whole human race 
was standing there with him. Okay? And so when Adam ate, so did I. When Adam sinned and fell in the garden, I sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. Because I was in Adam, so were you. And so the curse fell on Father Adam, my covenant head, and so it also falls on me. So what hope do we have, children of Adam, that we are? Well, none. We need a new representative. This is why Jesus Christ is called the second Adam. Jesus is our federal covenant head. And if Jesus is my covenant head, my covenant representative, then when he died, I died too. When he was buried, I was buried too. When he rose again, I rose again. And if he does that as my representative, that is not unjust at all because we are covenantally connected, you see. This is why Paul can say in Galatians 2.20, oh, did I put that one up there? Yeah, okay, good. I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we are in Him and He is in us. And the life I now live by the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Do you see how Paul can say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How is it that we have every spiritual blessing? Because Christ does. And we're with Him. We're in Him. His death is our death. It's not just that we don't have to die for our sins. It's that we already have. Because our representative has died. It's not just that Jesus has risen again to new life. His resurrection is our resurrection and so we shall live forever in him theologian john stott comments every blessing of the holy spirit has been given us by the father if we are in the son no blessing has been withheld from us of course we still have to grow into maturity in christ and be transformed into his image. By the way, that's why you have the second half of Ephesians. One, two, and three is more or less doctrine. Four, five, and six is more or less application and living. And explore the riches of our inheritance in him. Of course, too, God may grant us many deeper and richer experiences of himself along the way. Nevertheless, already, if we are in Christ, every spiritual blessing is ours. So what are the blessings? Well, Paul mentions two in the next couple of verses. I told them to you already. Forgiveness, he's holy and blameless before him, and adoption. Let's talk about those two. When God gives these two gifts, what you can write down if you like, when God gives these two gifts, forgiveness, adoption, what that constitutes for you and I who are in Christ is a total renovation of our identity. A total renovation of our identity. So what does it mean to be in Him? Well, first it means, it means we're forgiven. Verse 4, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. So this is sacrifice language. To pair together the words holy and blameless would trigger a memory association for guys like Paul the same way salt and pepper would trigger a memory association for you. 
If someone speaks of salt and pepper, you know they're talking about something to do with cooking or they're using a cooking metaphor. The, you two go together like salt and pepper. So you know that's a metaphor, like you're familiar with the pairing together, right? Paul uses the language of holy and blameless. He was invoking Levitical sacrifice language. We see it in the Old Testament in places like Exodus 29, verse 1. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them. You know why the word is consecrate? Because there's not a word in English called holify, <laughs> right? You shall holify them. Uh, you shall make them holy, set them apart. That's the word for holy. That they may serve me as priests, take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, without blame, that are blameless, okay? Holy and blameless. So to use this language of a thing being holy and blameless is to draw from the Old Testament sacrificial language. What that means is that God has chosen us so that He can forgive us and cleanse us so that we are no longer unclean before Him. We have a doctrine for this. It's called expiation. Okay, That's a fun 50-cent theological term. E-X-P-I-A-T-I-O-N. Basically, it means that God has cleansed, that He's removed the dirt and filth of our sin. Sin has, I'll make up a word, sin has a filthifying effect, okay? Sin makes you filthy, makes you dirty. When we sin, especially if it's a more heinous or weighty sin in our conscience, we have a sense that we've been defiled or made unclean. This is true both, by the way, when we sin and when we're grievously sinned against. Those who have been victims of sexual abuse will often acknowledge a sense of filth inside them, like a sense of being covered in grime and dirt, and I, I can't get it off me no matter how many showers I take. Lord have mercy. And being unclean, what, what this sense of uncleanness or blemish or blameworthiness or guilt does to human hearts and souls is this. It has a distancing effect okay? in two ways. First, people keep their distance from the unclean. Most obvious example, right, was leper colonies in the Old Testament where those uh, who had leprosy had to live outside the city and stay away from the general populace. And if they were walking in areas where there were crowds, they had to shout, unclean, unclean, as they walked so everybody would get out of their way. <clears throat> but if you've ever known someone who's been through really terrible, say, moral failure or really terrible betrayal, that is, they have been the betrayer, the human instinct is get away from me. Unclean unclean. Or even, it can even be uh, applied to someone who's been sick for a very long time. It can be hard to visit and just to be with them. You see, when someone gets sick, I mean really sick, initially, everybody tends to rush to their side to visit them in the hospital, to bring them a meal, and, and whatever else. But if it's a long sickness, a long affliction, if it's Job-like suffering that just drags on and on, our natural, sinful, in-the-flesh reaction is to retreat. And a lot of it is because we don't know what to say. In the initial stages of some sickness or malady or affliction, we can get a lot of mileage out of spiritual sentimentality, right? God's got this. Yeah. Hang in there. Yeah. It'll all be okay. Yeah. God won't give you more than you can... Stop. 
So what do you do, though, when the sickness goes on? Two years? Five years? Ten? Our impulse is to retreat. Maybe, maybe it's because in month one and month two, we fired off some paper-thin religious sentimentalism, and the long arc of affliction has turned us into liars. And I'm not saying that someone who has cancer or some kind of chronic illness for years is in the situation because they're covered with personal sin and transgression. That's the mistake Job's friends made. But they are certainly covered in the effects of sin, the effects of the curse. And it makes us retreat, if we're honest. And into this, Paul says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. This is your orientation toward each other, Christians. Not unclean and to be especially avoided. No, Jesus has made us holy and blameless because He has fearlessly drawn near to us. So therefore, dear saints, we can draw near to sinners, to thieves, to the chronically ill, to the long-time suffering. You know why? Because He's made us clean. He's made us clean. Then the, the other side of this coin, I said that we have a temptation to keep our distance. The other side of the coin is that the unclean keep their distance from people. It is well known that sin can bring about feelings of guilt and shame. There are secret sins, but there's no such thing as harmless sins. If you're guilty, bearing your guilt and your shame, even if it's a secret sin, it will affect how you interact with people. I promise. You will retreat. You will avoid interaction. You will flee. You will hide. That's what guilt and shame does. Because the shame is the constant companion of of sinners, right? Constant companion of traitors. And when we are deeply ashamed of ourselves, we have this sense that we've betrayed perhaps our Creator or even ourselves, our own sense of moral goodness. And what that betrayal does is it breaks our identity. I'm not the person I thought I was. And so we retreat and we hide. That is what shame does. And this shame, I am ashamed to say, is spread far and wide, not just through our culture, but through a lot of churches. We sin in secret, we keep it secret, we hold it inside, and then we wonder why we're spiritual cowards in our day-to-day life. It's because we know that wicked men in high places would have absolutely zero problem obtaining your internet history. And the moment we might risk something for Christ, our enemy reminds us, go ahead and step out and get noticed. I will send a mob after you. And we are ashamed. And so we retreat. If you want to know why so much of the church is ineffectual today, it is because we have forgotten how to confess our sins so that we might be free. Imagine if you could say to all the principalities and powers, you have nothing on me, I've confessed it all. Who are you going to tell? My wife? (laughs) She knows. Too bad for you. My elders? (laughs) They know. Too bad for you. My boss? He knows. You've got nothing because I've confessed it all to anyone 
who, who, who needs to know, anyone who would be impacted, anyone who my sin affects. And my Savior's removed the curse of my shame and said, Son, you're holy and blameless because you're in me. Jesus moves toward us because he means to clean and deliver. He means not to tolerate you. He means to make you clean. How can he call us clean, though? How does he call us clean? Because we're in him. Because we're in him. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. This is union with Christ. You are in Christ, and therefore, you are as clean as Jesus is. I didn't say he makes you feel clean. There's going to be some struggle there, no doubt. That can be because of personality, upbringing, and what you ate this morning. So I didn't say he always makes you feel clean. I said you are clean if you are in Christ, regardless of what you feel. So confess your sins today and be made fearless. I need to settle down if I'm going to make it through this. Jesus means to build churches where people are not afraid of the filth. Not because, not because they pretend not to notice it or act like it doesn't matter, but because Jesus Christ has removed it. Do you know what clean and forgiven men and women can accomplish? <laughs> Anything. Anything. Romans 8, verses 30 through 31 and those whom he predestined. There's a similar theme and topic to our text, right? Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God, if that God, if the predestinating, calling, choosing, justifying, glorifying God is for us, who can be against us? Did you catch that? Paul said predestination. He didn't say predestination makes you pick fights. He said predestination makes you fearless. Because God has chosen us, cleansed us all the way to the bottom of our souls. And what horde of guilty men will be a match for the clean sons and daughters of God? Is that what we really are though? Yes. Look at verse 5 of our text. He has predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So let me talk to you about adoption. We think of adoption mainly probably as babies and children joining a new family, and so it is. In the ancient world, though, adoption was a bit different. It wasn't less than what I just said. It was a bit more. In the ancient world... Adoption was often adoption of a young man into a family that did not have an heir to the estate so that he would then become the legal heir. And in the ancient world, this is so important, to be adopted was to be given a whole new set of rights and privileges that you did not have before. Privileges is the center point here in our text um, for adoption as sons according to the purpose of his will. Uh, and with the bestowal of any privileges, there are also ad adjacent responsibilities that come with it. Everett Ferguson, um, in a very helpful article on adoption in the New Testament that, uh, that Parker found for me, uh, he says this. He says, The person adopted at any age was taken out of his previous condition. All old debts were canceled. He starts a new life in the relation of sonship to the new pater familias, uh, uh, 
um, the, uh, the, the, the patriarch, the head of the household, whose family name he took and to whose inheritance he was now entitled. The new father owned the adoptee's property, controlled his personal relationships, and had the right of discipline, while assuming responsibility for his support, liability, his actions, all just as within natural children born into his home. Adoption was also a legal act attested by witnesses. So not only was an adopted person given, to use our terminology, a new last name, he also had all his debts canceled and has a share in the inheritance. His past was wiped clean. His future was now secure. And with that came all the responsibility of life in the new household. And so when Paul says we've been predestined for adoption as sons, do you realize what's being said? God's plan for you, Christian, before there was air or water or light, was that you would be an adopted son with a clean past and a secure future. This is so well stated by our catechism. It's at the front of your bulletin as well. What is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Whereby we are received into the number. So we're brought into a family. Have we any greater hope to offer this city and this parish and this state and indeed this nation of pervasive fatherlessness. Do you have a bad earthly father? There's a seat at the table for you. And your perfect heavenly father means to welcome you in. Do you have a good earthly father? Well, good. He's an echo of the perfect father who welcomes you in and rejoices to seat you too at his table. Have a right to all the privileges. That's what, uh, can you put that back up, the catechism answer? This word privilege has fallen on some hard times in our, in our culture. There are even people who would dare to say that wherever you have been privileged to enjoy one thing or another, you should be ashamed of it and apologize for it or feel guilty about it. But the biblical word for privilege back in verse 3 would be blessings. And I dare say it would be a sin to be ashamed of blessing. You can be ashamed of poor stewardship of blessing, but not of blessing itself. Blessing only calls for one reaction, which Paul models for us here in the second longest sentence in the New Testament, and that is gratitude. If you think that someone from a wealthy family grows up with privilege, <laughs> just wait till you hear about the inheritance of the adopted sons of God. Adoption as sons, it says. The sons of God. Speaking of that, why is it sons? Why isn't it sons and daughters? Is it because only the men in God's kingdom are adopted? <laughs> well, no. A lot of the more uh, you know, modernized Bible translations will translate this as children rather than sons. I could only find one that actually went with sons and daughters. What we have to square with, or at least be willing to think about as modern Westerners, is that we've been conditioned and catechized that it is exclusionary to use language like sons, and that to be inclusive, we should use words like children. What you discover, however, is that such things like this are only offensive to Westerners like us, and that in an Eastern context, Middle Eastern or Far Eastern, they understand this perfectly. It's not, a, it's not that the term son excludes women. It's a total misunderstanding. Rather, in, our, in that cultural context, the son is the one who got the larger portion of the inheritance. You see? 
It's, it's, don't think son, think greater inheritance receiver. And so when the apostle says you're all sons of God, he's not saying women cease to be women or cease to matter. He's saying that we're all inheritors of the greater portion of God's inheritance. So what is our responsibility? What are we to do with an inheritance? Well, what do you do with any inheritance? You receive it, you steward it well, and God willing, you pass it on to the next generation to see that other adopted children are brought in. What this means for all of us, brothers and sisters, is that our identity as children of God, when we speak of that terminology, we're not talking about all people. Perhaps you've heard, we're all children of God. No, we are all creations of God, but we're not all children of God. Jesus told the Pharisees they were sons of their father, the devil. Okay? But from all eternity... The Father has adopted sons into His family from every tribe and tongue and nation. This is why Christianity has always had a very positive orientation, to say the least, toward the work of adoption. Okay, adopting children into families. Not just as a plan B, but as a positive good choice for families. It's why Christians have always cared deeply about fatherlessness and have taken the destructive power of fatherlessness very seriously. If God had called himself our great employer, then getting a job would be one of the most important human relationships in your life. But he has called himself our father and therefore invested the vocation of fatherhood with enormous responsibility. And fatherlessness, therefore, is revealed to be more coldly destructive than we mostly imagine. And what a joy it is to preach, therefore, the fatherhood of God. That our God has adopted us into His family and has called our Lord Jesus our elder brother. And our God does not cut off the number of children He'll allow in His home because we get too expensive. Hallelujah. He means to adopt children from every nation. And so, in a sense, this renovates our ideas about the value of adoption. Uh, adoption of uh, 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 children who did not have parents, I mean, in the first, second, third centuries and, and, and on in, it, it quickly became, if you like, the territory of the church. Over time, the state and agencies of the state have unfortunately absorbed a lot of that work because, well, because one of the great sins of the state is always trying to absorb duties given to church or family or individual citizens. We won't talk about that now. But one of the church's greatest failures is that we let them. And I think a day will come, a day will come, I think, when the church reclaims the majority of the ministry of adoption and foster care and takes the mandated godlessness of the state out of it. Until then, one of the steps in the right direction is organizations we have here locally like Fostering Community, which is a nonprofit organization meant to be a bridge between the needs of foster children and the city. And we provided information on that organization on the cards that are in your bulletin. That's why I invited to make sure everybody had a bulletin this morning because you'll find a volunteer card in there about how to contact them if you're interested in helping. It's very easy. A uh, very easy way to serve vulnerable and needy children in our area. And they're often looking for volunteers. It's, it's very easy to connect with them. You just go to their website, sign up to be a volunteer, and then they'll be in touch with you. As far as the work of adoption itself, well, adoption is a chance to trust Jesus with enormous anxieties and to do for a child what God the Father has done for us. Not all families can adopt, okay? But all can consider it 
and pray, all families can pray for the end of fatherlessness in our parish. And the church's motivation for all of this, for all of it, is that we are the adopted children of God. So, as I wrap this up, what what we're given in this text is, as I said earlier, a marvelous renovation of our identity. Because we're with Him, because we're in Christ, we've been given this whole new identity. Forgiven, holy, blameless, adopted, now being taken from nothing to having every blessing from our Father in Christ. This is the good news that our world needs. Because we are constantly chasing atonement. Right? Once I just do this thing, have this thing, become this sort of person, then I'll be okay. Once I get to say, fill in the blank, once I get to say X about myself, or once people see in me that I'm a certain kind of person, then I'll be okay. Do you know why our culture is obsessed with the need to stand out, to have a very unique and attention-grabbing individual identity? It is because we are trying to be holy and blameless. We treat self-discovered identity as a kind of atonement. Once I settle this internal conflict inside of me, then I will finally be okay. So here's here's my self-constructed identity. Here are my pronouns. Here's my category. Here's my personality type. I'm a 7.32 with a 3.7 wing. Here's my label. Here's my classification. Here's my need to be cataloged. The gift of self-identity has actually ended up crushing us as we are one of the most depressed and anxious generations ever to live. And God the Father speaks into our chaos this word of peace. He says, Christian, you're my son. I've adopted you. You're holy. You're blameless. You're clean. You're forgiven. This is your family now. And Jesus, our brother, says, you're with me. You're in me. You're a Christian. You're a little Christ. And you've already died and risen again. I'm going to heaven, and you're coming next. My Father has given the nations into my hand, and that means I'm putting them in all y'all's hands. So go get them. Go get them. Go bring them in. Start in your kitchen. Then head into your neighborhood. Be not afraid. For adoption makes you fearless. I am with you, my adopted brothers and sisters, until the very last day. In the name of Jesus, amen. So our Father, would you help us to hear this, to appropriate it for our lives, to understand it, to glory in it, to celebrate it. Indeed, because of Jesus Christ, our brother. Amen.